What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I've got Jerry McGrath from Canada, also known as Canada. He's in Toronto, also known as Toronto. And Jerry, Jerry's like such an interesting character. We've done some stuff together. He's, he's had a career really focusing on understanding and supporting and helping and bringing together people who do creative work, artists, designers, creators, bringing them together to understand how to survive off their creativity. And he's done that at places such as the Banff Center, which is an incredible place in Calgary, in Canada, as well as at Artscape in Toronto. And we're going to talk a lot today about the future of work for creatives. It's a huge topic. And when we talk about that topic, Gerald, Raph, Jerry, what's the first thing that comes to mind as you contemplate the future of work for creatives? Uh, yeah, so great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what we're seeing, at least in terms of creative work right now, is that the places where people used to make money uh, are not the places where people are going to be make, making money going forward. So I work a lot with, I mean, literally hundreds, thousands of creators through spaces that I'm in. And a lot of them are really seeing diminishing returns on the game as it's been played to this point. And so there's a lot of people that are interested in exploring other places in order to earn their living. And what we're seeing is there's actually a, a real appetite to have creators involved in some of the, the big questions that we're facing as a, you know, a society or a community or as a, as a country. You know, things like the effects of technology or economic inequality or polarization of political discourse or climate change. And normally those haven't been spaces where creators have, have felt super comfortable to add their skills and their voices. But I think there's an awareness growing that we, we need kind of all hands on deck if we're going to deal with some of these things. And so there's some, some real meaningful opportunities for cultural producers, creators, um, to be active in those conversations. So for me, that's what the future looks like is that, you know, not these little isolated silos of artists over here and engineers over here and, you know, marketing's over here, but really trying to bring people together to start talking about and working on some of these big, big issues. You know what, as I hear you use words like places and spaces, I've heard you use those words quite a lot and they're not words that I use in the same way that you use them. And sometimes I was, I used to wonder, are you using them in an academic sense, in a government policy sense, or as I hear you talk now, in a spiritual sense? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair thing. Like, I think I think that when I'm talking about spaces, sometimes I mean physical spaces, but often it's also these points in time and place where different relationships come together, right? So. I think Banff, you mentioned, you know, I worked there for, for about eight or 10 years and, and Banff is a, a really special place because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it's in a national park. It's a significant spiritual place for indigenous people that live in that area, but also like 4,000 artists come through there every year. 25,000 people from the different industries that are in Alberta, so the oil industry or government or farming. And they all come together in this, this one particular location and, and it would be easy for them not to interact. And some of the work that I was involved in is, well, how do we make sure that when these people are in the same space at the same time, that they actually have some meaningful conversations. And so same thing happening in Toronto, right? Toronto is a, a, an amazing city, incredibly diverse. Um, more than half the people in this city identify as coming from communities of color, a huge, huge immigrant population. And so these all these different sort of uh, currents that are that are all operating on the same terrain and making sure that we actually create these moments for these different conversations to come together. 
Mm. So we're down on the waterfront now, this uh, Artscape Daniels Launchpad. It's a 30,000 square foot hub for creators. But we have Google Sidewalk down in that neighborhood. We have you know, lots of media companies down there. We have all the universities that are active. We've got creators, some of them you know, in their 20s that are trying to figure things out. And we've got all kinds of different disciplines operating out of this space. And then we have production studios in the space as well. And so what that does is it allows for these collisions to happen that allow for new things to be born. And if the money's not there, and if academia is not there, and if government's not there, I'm not sure that that, that can happen. So it's being really intentional about making sure that we're coming around the same sort of ideas and concepts, but also that all the right people are represented in the room. Mm. Yeah. And I think, cause you're very considered with your language use. And so when I hear you use the words places and spaces, and you're going to use other words like this through this interview, and you're going to use the words in a way that I might not understand the nuance of. And I, I, I find it really interesting to to hear and listen to because I always learn something from you because of it. What are, what are some of the most practical types of conversations you've already uh, with, with people who do creative work, who are trying to understand how to and where to make money to support their creative work? What are the most common practical conversations you find yourself in? You mean besides the ones I've stolen from you? What? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I mean the work you do around how to talk about ideas, I think is amazing. So, you know, I won't repeat that. So a lot of the people we deal with are facing like structural barriers to participating in, in the creative sector. So, you know, they maybe were born somewhere else or they're young or even being a woman in some cases. And so one of the sort of the practical lessons we give is exploit systems, not people. And the idea there is if you understand where a particular system's energy is going, then you can get in front of that. And it makes it a lot easier for you to get the resources and the support you need to be successful. Um, so an example right now in Canada is uh, our federal government is really interested in sharing stories of Canadian diversity through digital means. So if you're a creator in Canada right now and um, you're telling stories about multiculturalism, if you're telling different stories that maybe don't get shared that often, and you're doing it through screens or through digital means, um, then you're much more likely to get support and funding, both from the private and the public sector. And so it's not, it's not being like crass, it's just sort of understanding where the bigger activity is happening and then lining up with that. And it doesn't mean sacrificing your creative practice to that, it just means understanding the, the big human problems, right, that people are trying to deal with and, and trying to get in front of them. What are some of the other common practical discussions you find yourself in? Uh, I think another practical thing is like how to be dumb. Um, I think that when we hang out with people who share a uh, training or an education or a discipline with us, it's really easy to get technical really fast. Um, but when you choose to spend time with people who care about the same things that you do, but are coming at it from very different directions, um, you can have a lot more interesting conversations. <clears throat> so one of the things we see is like artists or, or um, you know, or marketers or, or people working in graphic design, they, when they get around other graphic designers or artists, they tend to talk about shop. They tend to talk about the problems that they're facing that are technical. When they get together with people who are worried about the same bigger issues, then the conversation can kind of get to a higher level and more interesting projects come out of it. So I'll give you, a, I'm thinking of a, a specific example. I do some work 
internationally around borders, you know, and a lot of the conversation around borders and uh, U.S.-Mexico border being a great example of this is, is really political. And so the question's like, well, what can creators or, or cultural people do to sort of deal with those issues? But when I start talking to people about borders and the challenges of borders and the polarization of borders, you know, you start getting introduced to people doing other things. And, and there's these two brothers, for example, down in uh, Tijuana, Mexico. And what they're doing is they're, they're taking garbage that's being sent down there for disposal, often from California, and they're turning it into furniture and into art pieces, and then they're selling it back in San Diego. Um, and they've created this whole community around sort of designing and, and making new things. And it has this political dimension, it has the social dimension, and it's, it's really kind of powerful stuff. But it wouldn't be on the radar of someone who's thinking about borders and from a political kind of perspective. Hmm. And is that an example of understanding the system's energy, which again is one of those phrases, which is somewhere academic, government policy, spiritual, physical, and I'd, I'd, I'd not really heard that phrase before. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think if you if you're on social media or if you're looking at the news, there's a lot of talk about borders, right? I mean, we're in Canada, but we still see, you know, the, all the stuff about building this wall and, you know, and so people are talking about it. And when people are talking about it, it means that attention or resources are moving towards it. And so if you can present someone with an opportunity to invest in addressing that issue in a way that aligns with how they see it, then that's, that's, that's a great opportunity to, to sort of do interesting work and be compensated for it. Mm. Um, but if you're not talking about it, like if all you're talking about is sort of the technical side of things, then people don't know that you care about that issue and you may not get invited into conversations that would allow you to show what you can do. When you talk about exploiting systems, not people, and understanding a system's energy, how do you help someone understand the system in which they're in, the system in which they could be in, and what the energy is? One, one way that we explain or with the people that we work with is getting them to talk about the things that they're concerned about in a way that anyone would understand it. So if they walked up to someone on the street and said, you know, this is, this is a thing I care about. If people kind of like tilt their head and give that confused poodle look, then they maybe are not talking about it in a way that, that is comprehensible to other people. You know that it's a system that you're in when it affects like your behavior, if it affects how you work, if it affects where you work. And if it's something that when you talk to people from outside of your discipline, that they understand what it is you're talking about and can contribute to that conversation in some meaningful way. And then in terms of leveraging it, then that's just a process of sort of figuring out who else is actually talking about this thing. And then how do I put myself in front of them? Okay. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned that if you're doing work involving multiculturalism and screens, that the private sector is more likely to fund it. Could you give me an example and why? All right. So, and this may not apply to the U.S., but I'm actually pretty sure it does. There's a lot of tech companies right now that are very successful. In many cases, they're successful because they're kind of bypassing some of the rules that have applied in the past. I was in New York recently, and uh, it was pointed out to me that the Ubers and Lyfts there, they have their own kind of license plate. They have their own designation, right? I think it's a TD or something like that. I'm not sure what it is. but TC. Maybe, yeah. And, and oh, it was just car after car after car after car was an Uber or a Lyft. This isn't something we see in, in Canada, but that's having a huge impact, right? Like I didn't see a taxi. We walked for 20 minutes. I couldn't find a cab. And so these changes are having a huge impact on like industries exist, communities, uh, how people get around. And at some point, people are going to have a conversation about whether or not it's a good thing. 
And so a company, if it wants to, to continue to do what it's doing, needs to kind of show to people that what it's doing serves a broad cross-section cross of the population. And so at least in Canada, what we're seeing is in the tech sector, a lot of them are investing in stories of multiculturalism and sharing them to screens because they want to be associated with this multicultural um, community that we live in. And if they're seen as only serving kind of a, a narrow cross-section of folks, then there's a real risk that people will start saying, hey, you know, why are we allowing them to make these changes? And so in response, they then invest in developing material and doing work that allows them to be like a good, a good citizen. Right. And so that's an example of understanding a system's energy where the system is increasing unintended good and maybe not good consequences of technology. And often the unintended consequences hurt certain populations. Therefore the private companies are spending money to manage that reputation and what they're doing. And hopefully not just about reputation, but actually doing legitimate authentic things to help the lives of these people. And what you're saying is that's understanding the system. And then if you're doing creative work, then if you wanted to exploit the system, not the people, you create work that you can sell into the private sector as it tries to manage its reputation and hopefully behavior. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think that if you honestly care about it, like, because I think these companies, they honestly want to do good work. Um, so for them, it's also an opportunity to invest in things that they can be proud of. Okay. Got it. What is a creative practice? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know anymore. I, I think I used to know, but it's making, it's making less sense to me now. Well, what, um, did, what would young Jerry say to that question? I, I, I think, I, okay. So to me, a creative practice is a way of bringing things into the world that you're constantly trying to get better at. Mm, keep going. No, I think that's it. I think that when, when I think it can, can sort of deviate and go off in different directions, but ultimately people feel a need to respond to a particular question or situation. Um, and they want to do that through making through actually, it's not just talking, it's actually building something um, that they can share with other people. Um, and they want to get better at that. So to me, a creative practice is like getting into a routine of bringing things into the world that speak to a particular question that someone's holding. There we go. I'm taking notes. And there were five elements to what makes a creative practice, according to young Jerry. Let's, yes. let's, let's ask this question to old Jerry now. But he, here's what young Jerry said, old Jerry. Young Jerry said that a creative practice involves having a question or a theme. And it involves bringing things into the world that someone cares about and they have to make those things and they do it also with the aim of, with the aim of improving and they do it through some kind of habit or routine. What does old Jerry think of young Jerry's point of view? Yeah, those are the good old days, right? Like six, seven years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a creative practice now is finding new ways to get attention. And I, I, I don't know that the practice is necessarily it's not always aimed at answering a particular question unless that question is how do I get people to notice me? Ooh. And I think there's real reasons for that, right? Like attention is the, the way that we get paid, but it's, it's, there are purists. I think there are people that, that are really committed to answering a particular question, but to not be concerned about getting noticed. Yeah. It's, it's a tough road to walk right now. Okay. So you've modified that those, those first principles to saying it's not always now about having a question or a theme and it's primarily about finding new ways to get attention. Wow. That's really meta and also really interesting. 
Have you worked with many people in the advertising world? Because what I'm trying to encourage people in that world to do is to, it's not just because this is what I'm trying to do, but is to have a creative practice because a lot of people can spend one to two decades in an advertising job, especially doing strategy work. And then that job and career disappear or they shift in huge ways and they have to work out who they are again, how much money they actually need to survive and also what they want to do in life. And that's a weird thing to have to revisit in your thirties and forties, sometimes without much notice, if the agency explodes or implodes, how could someone who's been around really creative, who's been around creative work, creative people, but hasn't really identified as an artist bridge that gap. And I think there's a clue in the question in that what's an artist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another interesting one. I mean, a lot of the people I see these days, they don't, they don't even self-describe as artists because it's not a useful designation for them anymore. But I think the, the idea of like artifice or artifact is important. Like I think if, if in your work, you're not creating something, it could be a blog post. I mean, it could be, it could be a, you know, an IG stream. Like I don't, I don't know what it is, but if you're not responding to some bigger question, through making something, then yeah, I imagine you're, you're pretty fragile to when things shift suddenly because your anchor is sort of your ability to navigate the game or to play the game that you've been taught. And when the game changes, what do you bring into that new game, right? Like what set of skills are you, are you carrying forward? And it may be a way of seeing the world that, that is portable, but I, I worry that, that that isn't often the case, that, that people sort of shift from, from trend to trend or from system to system without actually paying attention to what their contribution to that conversation is going to be. Hmm. Uh, and as far as making money in the creative world, obviously Toronto has a bunch of startups that are world famous and people might not even know that they're from Toronto. Shopify does come to mind and I think you have done a little bit of work with them. Yeah. What, what, how have you helped people establish new revenue streams, people who are doing creative work, establish new revenue streams. How do they navigate Shopify and, and, and similar products? And for those who don't know, Shopify is a relatively straightforward way to set up a shop and do e-commerce. It's relatively simple, right? Yeah. I mean, a part of it, we talked about spaces and places is like, how do we create space where those communities can come together? Right. Cause I think one of the problems is like Shopify, great company. I mean, super committed to helping entrepreneurs across the board, really invested in, in building out, you know, their footprint in the city, but a lot of folks never even talk to them, right? They, they don't, there's no connection between those worlds because they don't, they don't feel like there's a shared experience to draw upon. And this is really true with newcomers, right? Like in, in Canada, we call, you know, our recent immigrants newcomers and, and they really struggle, right? Because they come into a situation where they have these skills, they've done this work, but they don't even know who they're supposed to be talking to. And so I think a, a big part of it is, is just starting to have that conversation and then looking for the opportunities that, that can present themselves from it. The other is like uh, kind of co-creation. So we're involved with this uh, project called Ind Indigenous Fashion Week, um, which is uh, an event down by the waterfront, just started last year, or I'm sorry, this year um, in the spring. But it's a, like a, a way of highlighting contemporary Indigenous fashion. And Indigenous, we're talking about like First Nations and, and uh, uh, Aboriginal people in Canada. And, you know, Shopify was a, a sponsor of that. Because for them, what they saw as the opportunity was that these people are making beautiful work, often in, in rural communities or remote communities, and they needed a way to, to reach markets. And some of those markets are going to be international. 
And so for them, it was the most natural thing in the world to get in front of these amazing creators. But I don't know that that connection would have been an obvious one without someone intervening to kind of connect the dots there. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think this is a mean characterization, but I think people who are in the tech world who spend hours and hours in front of a computer screen, they're not always comfortable dealing with people. And so there's not always a reflex to reach out to local communities or to see what's going on. It's sometimes people are way more comfortable with code than they are with humans. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. Did and we... I think and vice versa, I think on the, like with the, the indigenous designers we were working with, they, they said they had their own stories about what the tech sector is like and how they talk. Right. And so when you go into that with assumptions, it can be really difficult to get to a place of like trust and intimacy. And to me, that's a big part of the work, right? Like, is how do you how do you say, you know, what you care about the same thing? Like, we care about the same thing, and and how do we find a way to act on that rather than kind of just coming in with those oppositions going on? Where did the word newcomers come from, for and for how long has Canada been using it? Is it just you? Is it is it? No, mainstream? no, no. It's across the board. It's mainstream. Yeah. Where did it come from? And I want to connect it. There's a book called American Nation by Colin Woodard. And he talks about the, I think it's 11 founding colonies of North America. And he talks about how in Canada, there was always much more back and forth between the Europeans and the locals. And I know that's got a lot of crazy history as well, but a lot more back and forth and, and a little bit more respect than in other parts of North America. And words like newcomers just seem like an extension of, of that built-in behavior. Is that, is that too easy to romanticize? No, I, I think that's a, a fair assessment. Like, I think, I mean, I don't know how deep we want to get into this stuff, but like Canada right now, we're having a moment around reconciliation with our first people. There's a, an understanding that a lot of, you know, really shitty things were, were done and that there needs to be an acknowledgement of that and then some actions taken to reconcile. You know, some would argue that there, it's not a reconciliation because there's never been a conciliation. But I mean, it's a, it's a complicated thing. But yeah, I, I think that this idea that there's like there's first people and then there's settlers and then some of those settlers are newer and some of them have been here longer generationally is, is an important part of the Canadian conversation. Um, there's a really a lot of openness to people coming from elsewhere. Um, Toronto has a lot of people from North Africa and the Middle East coming in. A space I'm in, we're partnered with the House, which is a uh, an incubator that was set up by um, the guys behind the weekend, and they, you know, and they they got their start in Scarborough, you know, and and their families. I think one was from Ethiopia, the others from Somalia. Like, there's a lot of stories like that. And also, I mean, the thing is, in, in Canada, until like the 1850s, it was majority Indigenous people. And so there's a real sense that some of our values as a country come from from that reality that maybe isn't the same in the U.S. or, or Mexico or elsewhere. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't hear a lot about the Indigenous in the United States of America. I'm a visitor here. I don't mean it as a judgment. Uh, and it wasn't really until you, you got me out to Banff where you were building into a lot of the sessions out there, respect for the, for the local people. They would be involved with the, the business sessions. Yeah. And when I came out, I think there were some first nation, there was a first nation conference happening similarly. And I remember sitting at a fire with people who were representing different parts of the world. What did you learn about that huge topic? A, this is a really clumsy question. What did you learn about that huge topic from your time, especially at Banff that someone who hasn't 
had a lot of interaction with people who are indigenous to a country. How could you help them understand what's going on in that huge world? All right. So I, a few things. Uh, I think one is that, um, and we're getting, I mean, we're getting a bit like kind of abstract here and, and let me know if you need me to, to get a little clearer on this, but like one, one thing I learned is that the work that we do, the creative work that we do, we're accountable to the land that we're on. And so I think it's easy, like in a big city like Toronto or New York or wherever else, to sort of forget that you're in a place, that you're somewhere. You know, it's easy to sort of imagine this world of anywheres, right? Like it doesn't matter where I am, I can do this work. So my work with those communities really forced me to pay attention to the land I'm on. And the stories that, that kind of brought us to this point and the stories that didn't carry it forward. Like I have a daughter, you know, I need to, I, I, even if I didn't, I would need to be concerned about what happens in the future. And so creative work being informed by this connection to land and place is, is an important thing in my mind. Another thing is that we sort of have allowed, and I'm not anti-capitalist, like I, I believe capitalism does great things, but we've sort of allowed capitalism and its values and its moral position to occupy everything. And there are some places where it's just not appropriate. And for me, one of the great gifts of working with uh, indigenous communities is their willingness and their fight to ensure that different values are preserved in how they like do government, how they do business. Like indigenous entrepreneurs, they, they prioritize family, they prioritize generosity. They, there are different things at the center of the decisions that they make about what their creative business looks like. And then the third is this idea of like multi-perspectivity, like that we're more effective as creative professionals or as business people when we're able to carry multiple perspectives at the same time. It sometimes is attractive to kind of choose one direction and go as fast as you can down that. But in the long term, we found more success with people who are kind of able to hold a whole bunch of truths at the same time um, and use that to inform both how they create, but also how they, they do business. So it's not like, well, I, I'm on the left, so I'm only going to work on these causes. It's, it's actually like what spaces are available that allow for a whole bunch of different folks to, to sit around and, and work on something. Um, because I find the resources are, are healthier in, the, in those kind of third spaces as well. Are there truths that have become more powerful in your life in recent times that to some other people might appear to be in conflict? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I guess the one that I deal with most directly is like I'm dealing with creators that are really committed to creating some beautiful things or telling amazing stories or supporting a, a product to reach as many people as possible. Um, and then I look and I, I value that. I think that's amazing that people are committed to, to creating beauty for us. And then I look at the consequences of sort of the system that we're in and, and how I'm not sure how livable a world I'll be living in, you know, in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And so it's, it's sometimes hard to reconcile work that, that is beautiful and has craft but doesn't actually move the dial on some of the big stuff and then to still care about those big things. So for me, that's, that's, that's a sort of an ongoing struggle. Cause I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist. I don't want people to, you know, I want people to make a living and, and have a beautiful life, but we may be actually eroding our ability to have beautiful lives. If, if we, if we don't kind of 
change course. So I, I'm, that's when I, I think I've been, I've been trying to navigate. So I've, I've been doing more and more work with creators who are interested in, in, in working in some of these other, other spaces and, re and really thinking about the kinds of stories um, and ways of knowing that we're going to need, you know, if we do kind of fuck things up and, and what's going to make us more resilient should things, you know, not get better. Uh, that's a big one. That's a big one. Uh, with marijuana recently being legalized in Canada, how has that affected the, like people to do creative work. <laughs> it's interesting. We have a bunch of, of kind of marijuana startups uh, that we work with. Well, one, one great one is that marijuana is in this sort of weird middle space now where, um, where it's not tobacco, it's not alcohol. And so we're still trying to figure out what that means as an industry, but they're investing very directly in culture. Um, they're not allowed to advertise because and they're not allowed to do branding work even. Um, so they're being really creative about how identities are, are built. And a lot of that involves investing directly in projects or indirectly in projects, lots of events, lots of parties, but also lots of kind of more interesting and more subtle stuff. That's been interesting to see. I mean, there's a ton of money, right? There's a ton of money that's, that's in that industry. And it's different from province to province, but we're, we're definitely seeing some trends there. And product development, obviously, you know, there's a ton of research trying to figure out what the marketplace will look like. And so we're seeing more investment in people who are able to go out and kind of generate insights about what potential applications, given the kind of the, the strict rules around it that exist. With all the work that you do in supporting other people's creativity in supporting other artists, do you ever wonder if you do that to distract yourself from your own self-expression and your own artistry? Oh yeah, for sure. You talk about, you know, the need to have a practice and I do, but it's one that I, I sort of left behind as a, a real path for me a while back. And so, yeah, I definitely think that part of what I do is because I can't or because I haven't, I want to support others who can, and will like I, I think it's like incredible that a grown-up draws pictures for a living like I, I just think that that I don't know that we appreciate the miracle that people make it all the way to adulthood and still are committed to creating things for other people like I think it's 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 beautiful but yeah I think a, a part of it is is a way of kind of dealing with the fact that that I didn't pursue my own my own path as as aggressively as I, I wish I had it Hmm. And so when you say that you left behind a real path, what is a real path? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a, a good question too, based on what I've shared. At the time, I said, well, this is something that, that I enjoy. Uh, I, you know, I write. And this is something that I could build a, you know, I thought maybe I could build a career around. But I discovered I had other skills that were easier to commodify. And so I, I went down the route of perhaps least resistance um, in order to, to build a life, like to, to pay myself, to, to have some comfort. Um, and looking back, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Like I feel good now that I'm able to support other creators to not have to make the same choice as I did. But it, it, yeah, I, wonder, I sometimes wonder what would have been different if I had chosen uh, differently. What would have to happen for you to commit to a creative practice? Yeah, I think the big thing is to give myself permission. Like, I, I don't think anything else is restricting me. It's I think, like I'm, I'm sort of a slave to my own, my own habits. And so I think it would be to forgo the easy stuff, responding to emails, talking to clients, going into work, 
and, and sit down to the hard stuff and the hard stuff. I don't even know, like I, I may not be good. Right. And this is, this is, I see this with the people I work with. They ask themselves every day, am I any good at this? Like am I actually meant to do this. And I said, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't do that for myself. So I think for me, that would be, that would, that would be what I would need to, to kind of build up the courage to do is to forego the things that, that I kind of have been rewarded for in the past and do things that might actually not turn out to be all that good. I love that phrase to sit down to the hard stuff, uh, but also knowing you for as long as I've known you, it's hard not to hear you use the word comfort and also recall conversations we've had about how much you enjoy and not in a sadistic way, but you enjoy helping people who do creative work or people in business explore what's uncomfortable to them. And you find that comfortable. So you find getting other people to sit down to the hard stuff quite comfortable, right? Well, we build what we need, right? So, like, I think a lot of any, any, anyone, I think, that's committed to what they're doing, they're addressing some need in themselves, right? The fact that I create these kind of opportunities for discomfort is probably because I need a bit more discomfort in my own life. So, what I wonder with your work, right? Like, I look at what you do and the amazing different kind of, you know, pots that you've got, you've got your finger in, you know, and, and what, what need is addressed there. And, and I think it's a question that I ask of a lot of people. But, uh, you spent a few years in Japan. How did that change you? <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So what, I haven't asked about profanity. I've already dropped a few, but I'm sure it's all right, right? Mm-hmm. We're, yeah. So when I went to Japan, uh, I was uh, an asshole. You know, I was arrogant. Uh, I thought I, I still am, but it's a different kind. But at the time, I thought I thought I understood things. And I went there and I very quickly learned that I didn't have a clue. A completely kind of a different way of seeing the world, a different way of interpreting space and, and interactions and other people. It was wonderful because I, I was dumb. Like I, I didn't understand what was going on. And so I became really curious uh, about what was going on after a while. So I think for me, the big change is that curiosity kind of became a practice for me where trying to figure out what's happening in any given situation has become like habit. Um, and also just the, the recognition that there are different ways of doing things, which I don't think I, I knew. I was, I was young, but I mean, I, I don't think I realized that there were other legitimate ways of, of like being a creative and making things or of making your living from the work that you do. And so to me, that was, that was huge. What's the least comfortable thing you've done in the past two years? I think that until maybe a year, year and a half ago, um, I was very good at saying the right thing, you know, kind of controlling a situation. But I don't think I was very good at at being compassionate or, you know, really loving other people. Um, And so for me, the big switch that I've been, I've been trying to figure out is how to do that. And it's, it's exhausting. It's hard. Uh, I'm not good at it. Like I feel like, you know, when you see like horses getting born and they can't walk, it's a bit like that. And I see other people and I recognize that, oh my God, they've been like, they're so much better at this than I am. They, they, they're compassionate. It doesn't overwhelm them. They love people and they don't get buried in it. And so for me, that's been the most uncomfortable thing is to, to kind of stop being, stop doing the things I was good at, which is like, being difficult or being provocative or being, you know, always wanting to be the most interesting person in the room and, and starting to do things that I was like bad at, which is like listening with empathy, being compassionate, really showing love for people uh, that I, I maybe wouldn't naturally be drawn to. 
Could you give me a couple of examples back to some of the work you're doing at Banff? And maybe you've continued this kind of work in Toronto, but you, you told me about an example once where you guys were helped with you, where the, the team was helping a company change because people would often come to the Banff Center to do offsites and to get your, your counsel. And you would often use quite esoteric and eccentric adjacencies or analogs, and one of them involved Russian theater. So it was a, a big IT company, and they were built around a particular set of values about how they wanted to work together, how they wanted to be together. But, you know, as companies get bigger, um, they tend to fall into routines that are familiar, right? Really hierarchical, really, you know, really performance uh, and evidence-driven, um, not really allowing a lot of space for kind of play. We brought them out, and they wanted to kind of explore how their leadership team would work. It was like a, a global leadership team and how they wanted that to kind of cascade down through the organization. And we ended up working with a, a theater director who was really like influenced by Russian theater practices. But one of the kind of ideas that came out of this is that the job of a, a director is to, to make sure that people know that there are moments when we are in rehearsal and there are moments when we know we are in performance. And what ha often happens in companies is like you're either always rehearsing, you're always playing or innovating, but then nothing, nothing gets done, right? Or you're always performing um, and you're always kind of executing and executing and executing, but then nothing new gets generated. Um, and people get uncomfortable moving back and forth between those spaces. And so we used actually some like theater practices to say, what if, you know, you were very explicit to say, all right, at this moment we are rehearsing and anything goes, you can be as weird as you want. You can say what you want, but then there's a moment we say, okay, now we're performing. We've got skin in the game. And then suddenly innovation and new ideas need to be held off for a little bit while we execute on this commitment that we've made. And they took that and they like it's out to 5,500 or 6,000 employees as a, as a model for them to be able to even just talk about leadership and management in a world that really, you know, is fast moving. But at the same time, they, they have to execute. Okay, last question. So you talked about this paradox where you love supporting people who do creative work and you admitted that you're trying to find even more compassion in the way that you deal with people who do creative work and you want people who do creative work to, to see what they do as being important. And at the same time, not all of that creative work is necessarily going to change the world. And you're worried. It sounded like about what the world's going to be like in 10 or 20 years. And so that leads to this dissonance where I guess to some degree you value the work you do. And then you also question if it's, the, the right way to apply yourself to the world right now. What are you optimistic about in the world of creativity in which you operate? Optimistic. I mean, that's, that's, a, yeah, there's so many things that I, I feel hope about. One is that, so uh, young people in particular that we work with, their openness to like kind of being complicated by other people's practices or approaches is like so much better than some of the, not would say older, but like the generation before them. I think there's a recognition that whatever career path used to be there isn't there anymore. And so they're, they're kind of like wide open to what possibilities could emerge. So I feel very optimistic that those types of collaborations are going to create some really interesting um, and messy kind of projects. Um, so I feel very optimistic about that. Uh, the other is that, you know, although the world, you see a lot of kind of like anger and frustration, I feel like that it's out in the open 
and so in the world of creativity we're seeing some just amazing responses like i was down in, in new york as i say but i go to the u.s a lot you've got some just incredible work coming out that's responding to a very bad situation but that people are trying to make sense of so i feel optimistic that the culture's role like it's not in a gallery and it's only available to the rich like the fact that creativity is now being applied in so many different parts of our life like to me that that is really encouraging because we're going to need that yeah and i think just just the some of the old biases and assumptions that used to define creativity they're starting to fall apart simply because they have to um, there's too many people that want to do amazing work um, and the old rules and the old game isn't working and they're demanding a different set of rules and a different game to play. And, and I have, I'm optimistic that they're going to, they're going to make that happen. Um, and so I, I feel, I feel really heartened by that as well. Thank you so much for joining me, Jerry. For those who know you, hopefully a few people who know you listen to this, please call Jerry rap. Jerry, I give people that I love and it's not just look, and all hit me up for a nickname, but I, I, I'm very early with nicknames and I know that sometimes they can be patronizing, but when I call rap Jerry, rap Jerry, he knows, he knows what I'm getting at. He knows what I'm getting at. Cause I like, I like a little bit of street Jerry and you know what I'm talking about, right, Jerry? I do. I yeah, do. It's good. It's good. So everyone please call him rap Jerry. And I really think wherever you are in the world, look Gerald McGrath up on the internet. He gets around Canada and many places in really interesting ways across business, academia, the arts world, government. And I know that what drives you, Jerry, is trying to work out how to pull good people together who you think have got something to contribute. And you've done, you're doing it with hundreds and hundreds of people and it's incredible work. So hats, hats off to you. And uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with me today on Sweathead, my man. Thank you very much. Very much. It was a lot of fun. And you got me, you got me feeling feelings. So that's, that's, I thank you for that. Yes. I inflict feelings on people. That's, that's, that's my life's work. Uh, all right, man. Uh, well, please creative practice report back in two weeks. Let us know how it's going. Yeah. We'll do. Yeah. Where can people find you on the internet? Twitter at Gerald McGrath, J E R R O L D M C G R A T H at Gerald McGrath. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much, Gerald. Hey, thank you. Peace.